following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning. Thank you, uh, David, for coming and sharing about uh, his book and giving us the opportunity to... um, have it available for sale. I've known David for uh, many years, um, and uh, good guy. And I would highly recommend the book. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I have read a good chunk of it, and it's really good stuff. And it would actually be a great companion book to go along with the study of, of Hebrews. Um, very, a lot of uh, great corresponding ideas and thoughts. So I would encourage you to pick up a copy and. Great suggestion of doing it with a home group or small group with your family on a journey of learning how to love to pray. Uh, This morning we're looking in Hebrews chapter 7, continuing our look at Jesus, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, or Melchizedek. Um, I'd hope to make it all the way to verse 22, but we're only going to make it to verse 19. (laughs) So um, let's begin reading in verse 16. Who, that is Jesus, has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Uh, in chapter 7 through 10, as we've been discussing, uh, it, it's, it's about Jesus as our high priest and really all that his high priestly ministry um, does for us, what it obtains for us. Um, and of course, The basis of all this, the confidence of all this, is not anything that we've done ourselves, but it's Jesus. And even as we sang songs this morning of Jesus' work on the cross. And it is that work that makes possible for us everything that he describes in these chapters. uh, uh, Through his death and through his eternal priesthood. That the ministry of of the cross, uh, of Jesus, began on the cross. But it continues on throughout all eternity as he's ministering to us the effects of the cross, the ongoing working of the cross uh, as it unfolds. It was a one-time event, but his priesthood uh, delivers its ministry to us day by day. Um, And this section starts, uh, well, if we back up a little bit, uh, he's given us some warnings. And in fact, as we talk, there's these serious warning passages in Hebrews that are hard to swallow sometimes, and uh, we've got three down, two to go. Um, and he begins the, the, the previous uh, warning before this with these words. He says uh, in, in uh, Hebrews 5.11, he says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Um, it's hard to explain because it's, it's solid food and not milk. And so what, what Paul is moving into here is, it, is advanced theology. This is not Christianity 101. This is advanced stuff. This is stuff for those who are mature, those who are ready for solid food and not just milk. 
Um, and so he says in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So he's forging ahead. And, and in these verses we get a picture of what he means by maturity. And we can understand something of, of what he meant by milk versus solid food. Um, and as he goes and he explains this ministry of Jesus' eternal priesthood, um, the truth is that these are difficult truths for people who are satisfied with just milk. So this is the good news for me, because at the end of the sermon, if you go, that was dumb or boring or I don't get it, I can say, well, it's just because you're just on milk. <laughs> you're just not ready for the mature things, right? Um, or it could be because I didn't explain it very well. That's also possible. Um, but, but, uh, and he's not saying here that milk is not important. Right? Milk is vitally important. Uh, but it shouldn't be our diet forever. Milk is what we drink at the beginning of the journey when we are a new babe in Christ. But as we continue on, we should outgrow the milk and we should have a hunger for solid food. Um, so in these verses, we start to get an idea of what he means by that. What is milk and what is solid food? Well, uh, as we go through this, we begin to see that milk is, um, is the basic teaching about the cross and what it has done to bring about the forgiveness of sins. Now, by that, it doesn't mean that mature things, we, we, we ditch the cross. Okay? The mature things are also rooted in the cross. But the difference is that uh, the focus of milk is that Jesus' death on the cross uh, forgives us of our sins. And it is a vitally important truth. It's the beginning of salvation. And it's, uh, if we know anything of God's salvation, we must know that. That his sacrifice cleanses us from sin. Uh, but the sad truth is that for many Christians, this is about all of Jesus they know. Right? If you were to ask them, what's the gospel? They would say, well, the gospel is the forgiveness of sins. And you would say, what else? And they would say, well, that's it. Okay, that's a person who's never gotten past milk. Um, and what's even more tragic is that for a lot of Christians, that's all they really want to know. That's all of Jesus they want. That's enough. You know, I, I saw that I was uh, a sinner. I saw that I was under the curse of God, his wrath. I saw that I was destined for hell. And, and God came and revealed the cross to me and Jesus' sacrifice for my sin. And I believe that. And so I'm forgiven. My destination has changed from heaven uh, from hell to heaven, and so I'm good. What more do I need? I can go on with my life uh, feeling less guilty and knowing that my future is secure, and that's all they really want. Well, that's a person who's happy with just milk. And, and this is, these are the kinds of people that he, the author is warning in, this, in these warning passages. He's saying you're the exact kind of people who is in danger of falling away because you've been content with nothing but the milk. And you are not growing into uh, taking in, eating regularly the solid food of God's word. The deeper truths of what Jesus' salvation has for us. So, so what more is there to Jesus' work? What more is there about the cross? What more is there to salvation besides just forgiveness of sins? Um, what is Jesus' high priestly ministry that we're in danger of missing out on if we don't go past the milk of the word? Uh, well, that's what he talks about in this passage. And actually, for the next several chapters, he, he's telling us the many benefits, the many pieces of God's salvation that come to us through 
the eternal priesthood of Jesus. Um, and basically what he offers here is that we, we have the hope of something better than the old system. And so let's talk about what that means. He says, on the one hand, a former commandment, a former law, regulation, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Okay, so, so he's talking here about the old system, the Old Testament system, and specifically in the context here, it's not all the commandments, although it's true that all of the law fails to make us perfect. Right? If we could keep the law sufficiently to perfect ourselves, uh, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. But here he's speaking not about the whole law in general, but he's really talking about the law or the regulations regarding the priesthood, right? the Levitical priests. Uh, where they had uh, the priests who would dress a certain way and they had certain ceremonies they had to go through. And all that was involved with it, the temple itself, uh, the sacrifices, the offerings, and all the regulations that go with uh, temple worship. And he says, he says that this old system of temple worship is weak and useless. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't... I don't as a general practice, say that about anything in the Bible, right? John 3.16 is weak and useless, right? <sighs> like that's just asking to get struck by lightning, right? Uh, it's, not, it's not general that we call God's word weak and useless. Um, those are pretty strong words. What does he mean by that? Well, he is not saying that the law was without purpose, that it was like some kind of mistake, like God had this plan, I'm going to save these people by giving them this temple worship and these laws, and by that they could get saved. But then, you know, they tried it and it didn't work, and God was like, oh my goodness, it didn't work. Right? I need another plan. And so we thought, well, I'll send Jesus. Right? No, that's not it at all. Right? God's eternal purpose was designed from before the creation of the world. He knew from the beginning that it was a flawed system. He never intended that people could be perfected, that they could be saved by offering uh, sheep and goats and, and bulls as, as a sacrifice for sin. But as I shared last, last week, it was all designed as a great picture to illustrate what was required. But it was just a picture, an example. It was never intended to be the real thing. Right? It all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the only sacrifice that was sufficient, which was Jesus. Right? But it gave them, in many countless ways and layers, pictures of what was required and what it, what it meant to worship this holy, transcendent God who, who was not like us in any way and who was holy, who was perfect, who was without sin. So as weak, it was useless in, in the sense that the animal sacrifices were never sufficient. Right? They, they never had the benefit or the power to atone for sin. It's just a picture so, um, so it was weak. It was ineffective. It was. It lacked the power necessary to actually save us. Um, and and he says specifically that it was weak and powerless, and that it could not. It could make nothing perfect. Now, when we hear the word perfect, what do you, what do you usually think of? Uh, usually, we think of it in terms of uh, like moral perfection, right? Especially when we're thinking about the Bible, uh, that somehow it. Uh, we get this idea that the, the blood of Jesus makes us, brings to us moral perfection. It, it's that word again. It forgives. It cleanses us from sin. 
And of course, that's true, and that's a part of what perfection is, but that's not really what he's talking about here. He's not talking just about getting our sins cleansed. Uh, and it's interesting, he doesn't say uh, the law could not make a person perfect. He says it can't make a thing perfect. And he's really talking here about the whole failure of the system. The system was inadequate. There was a flaw in the system itself that um, prevented it from fulfilling God's purpose in saving. So what exactly was that, that purpose? Um, and and how, how was it flawed? Well, basically it was flawed in that the law created a system in which the worshiper only encountered a closed door. Let me explain what that means. Uh, if you're, and, and to do this, we have to go back and, and imagine ourselves as a devout Jew. Okay, if you're a devout Jew who's committed to God, who's committed to worshiping Yahweh, uh, what was the temple and the priests and all these sacrifices, what did it mean to you? Uh, how did you think about it? Well, to help us see how they thought about it, we can go to many places in the, in the, in the scripture, uh, many in the Psalms. But let's, let's take one, Psalm 84. Psalm 84 gives us a a vision or a picture of what temple worship meant to them. Uh, Starting in verse 1, and this is probably written by David, a psalm of David. Uh, He says, How lovely is your dwelling place, the temple, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. He, he looks at the temple as a place of longing. He says, man, I want to be in the temple. And the whole psalm kind of unpacks this desire to, to live at the temple. Uh, later, he says in verse 10, For a day in your courts, that is the temple courtyard, is better than a thousand elsewhere. Right? So he's saying, look, I'd rather spend one day in the, uh, the, the, the courtyard of the temple than a thousand days at the beach in Phuket. Is that what you would say? That's what he said, right? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the the wicked. So I'd rather be, you know, we all have, you know, in Thailand, we have these gatekeepers, right? The guys that sit at the fronts of your Muban all day long, twiddling their thumb. How would you would love to have that job, right? Like that's everybody's dream, right? I want to go to college and graduate so I can stand there all day opening the gate up and down, right? Not, not exactly a, a glory position. He says, look, I would rather have that job so I could be near to the house of God than to live in the fanciest, wealthiest, most elaborate house of some wicked person. Okay, that's their heart. Their heart was to be, be there. He says, for the Lord, is, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So, so how did they see the, the whole system of the priests and the sacrifice in the temple? Um, for them, it was not just about getting your spiritual laundry done. Right? It was not just to go, it's like, oh man, I got sin, so you know, I'm dirty, so I've got to go to the temple and offer those sacrifices, do that blood thing, so I can get clean, and then I'll feel better about myself because I will have got my spiritual laundry done. Oops, I just lost my whole computer. Uh, that was not their primary purpose. Now, of course, they recognized the need for that. They recognized that uh, to come into 
into the temple, they had to have sin dealt with. But that's not what he longed for. Read Psalms 84. In fact, not once in Psalm 84 does he mention the need for forgiveness or atonement. The other Psalms talk about that. But his focus here is, is being near to God. Um, the, the temple was the place where the glory of God was constantly dwelling. And to be there was to be near God's presence. Now, of course, the, the Jews didn't believe that God's present wasn't present everywhere. They knew that God was omnipresent, right? He was everywhere. And they knew that no matter where they were, that God seed them, seed them <laughs> saw them. I've got to work on my English grammar. That God saw them. Uh, but the temple was a place where God's manifest presence dwelled. In other words, it was a place on earth that God chose where he displayed his glory, where he poured out his glory. And in the Holy of Holies, God's presence dwelled in a special way that they could encounter. Uh, David longed for the courts of God's temple because he wanted to be as close to God as he could get this side of heaven. And in many ways, the temple was exactly that. It was a picture, a piece of heaven on earth. Right? They knew that God lived far away in the heavens, but at the temple, God had designated this place as his earthly dwelling so that everything he was in the splendor and majesty of heaven, he was present in the temple. And he longed to be that close to God. He longed to be that near to the infinite glory an awesome beauty of, of God. Um, so, so that was part of it. They wanted to be, and their picture of all this, their picture of what it meant, what all this blood and sacrifice meant, was they could draw near to God. And they could behold His glory and His beauty and His majesty. But not only that, we also see that they understood that when they were that close to God, God also saw them. And again, it's not that they didn't think that God, they had to go to the temple for God to find them. They knew that God could see everywhere, that, that he was everywhere present. He always had his eye on them. But there's a very special sense that when you were in the presence, you were in uh, the special presence or under God's special attention. You came before him where, where you were before him and God saw you as a, as a worshiper, as a seeker, as a petitioner, as one who comes to pray in God's presence. Um, so, so David prays and he hopes. He says, O oh Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Right? When he comes into the temple, it was the place where he knew he could pray and God would hear him. Give ear, O oh God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O oh God. Look on the face of your anointed. So the temple was not only a place where they could see God, but where they were confident God would see them. And in seeing, God would respond with mercy and grace and help and he would hear them. Um, so this is the system that our author of Hebrews calls weak and useless, right? And he's, he's saying that it's weak and useless not only because the animals were insufficient to cover their sin, but also because it actually couldn't bring them into God's presence. Because when you went to the temple and you came to the courtyard, what you actually encountered was not God's presence, but a closed door. Right? Uh, here's the flaws and weakness of the system. First of all, the temple was not portable and could not be moved. Right? You couldn't just pack this all up. Now, the tabernacle was, uh, but not that portable, actually. But the temple, for sure, was not, was not portable. Um, why, why did David long for it? 
I mean, he lived at the palace right next to it. Why didn't he just get out of bed, get a lazy tail out of bed, and walk across the street and go to the temple? Well, probably because he wasn't in Jerusalem, right? He's writing this when he's on some military campaign. He's out you know, having war, beating people up, doing his thing. And he can't be in Jerusalem at the temple. Uh, and actually, the context of this is not only for David, but for all those. Most Israelites didn't live in Jerusalem. Right? So if you wanted to go into the presence of God, you, you had to buy a bus ticket. Right? You, had to get, you had to go to Jerusalem. Um, and in fact, that's part of the, what he's talking about here. It's, it's, a, it's a psalm of pilgrimage. He says in verse 5, What joy for those whose strength come from the, comes from the Lord, who have set their minds on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Love that have set their minds on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, new living, that's a new living. Uh, ESV says, whose hearts are the highways to Zion. In other words, their heart is, they're, they're, in their heart they've got this picture of the journey, the pilgrimage, the, the highway to Jerusalem. So that was one of the problems is that um, for most Israelites, it was a great distance. It, it meant maybe you went once a year, right? On a special occasion you would go and you would come into the presence of God. Right, so that's, that's a flaw in the system. Um, secondly, uh, if you did make that pilgrimage and you went up to the temple and you got there, uh, you go into the car, this massive courtyard and there before you stood this beautiful temple building. Temple of, whether it was the Temple of Solomon or later temples, even the Temple of Herod, this massive structure, holy place. And you knew that inside that building, God's glory dwelled. But guess how close you got to get to that? Not very close at all. You stayed outside in the courtyard and you observed the temple from a distance and its door was closed. Right? You did not actually draw near to God. You could see where he was, but you could not access it. Uh, and the, sep- the separation, this barrier that was between uh, the temple and, and the average worshiper uh, teaches two truths about God. And again, all this is a picture, right? So it's teaching pictures. It's giving them images of what it means to encounter and come before God. Uh, the first truth that it teaches, and there may be more, but two that we can talk about right now, is that God is transcendent. What that means is that God is not part of creation. Right? The sun is not God because God made the sun. Right? All the stars in the sky are not God because God made them. He's beyond creation, outside of it, bigger than creation. Uh, he's not tied to it like we are. Uh, so we talk about his, his, his dwelling being in heaven. And by that we mean like somewhere beyond the universe, somewhere beyond the created world is where God lives in his, in his dwelling. And so we're separated from God because God lives in heaven and we live on earth and we don't know how to bridge that, right? To date... AIS has not built a, a fiber optic cable to heaven. Right? Uh, there's no satellite, although you know, lots of people are trying to get that satellite beam far enough out there. But uh, it's off limits, right? It's outside of our world. Uh, but the good news is that God himself bridged that huge gulf when he came down and he put the temple there. That's what it was. It was a picture of heaven on earth. The God chose to come down, and even though he lived far away, he set up a summer cottage, another residence on earth where we could access him. So he bridged himself the gulf of his transcendence. He made himself close and available to us. But the second thing it teaches us is that um, 
But there still is a barrier. The temple's there, God's glory is right there, but there still is a barrier. And of course that barrier is sin. Right? Sin. God is a holy God. Um, pure, without sin. Absolutely holy. And His holiness is a consuming fire of judgment. God must judge sin. Uh, he must consume it all with judgment and wrath and fire. And so the closed door was to protect the worshiper from being completely destroyed in the presence of this holy God. Uh, and we see examples of it in the Old Testament when uh, you know, the priest went in with a strange fire and it was, they weren't following directions. They weren't doing it right. And what happened to them? They became burnt toast, right? God consumed them. It's not anything to mess around with. And so this barrier was for their protection. Um, and, and the author's saying, that's the flaw in this system. Right? Salvation is ultimately coming into God's presence, and it could not do that. At best, you encountered a closed door. Uh, how many of you like closed doors? <laughs> Anybody? I, I personally hate closed doors. Um, and we know how this works. It's human nature. Uh, if you tell a little child, a little three-year-old, uh, you, you shut the door and you say to them, I don't want you going in that room, right? Where's the first place the kid wants to go? I mean, they'll become obsessed with getting in that room. And boy, if it gets left open, boom, where are they going to be? Exactly where you don't want them. Why? Because we want to know what's on the other side of that closed door, right? We don't being, like being shut out. If you get into a serious quarrel with your wife or with one of your kids and they run away and they go into their room and slam the door and lock it, how does that make you feel, right? And you can go into the door and you can bang on it. You can say, okay, Junior, open that door. I'm gonna, when you get out, da, 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 right? But you're shut out, right? You're, you're, you're closed off. Now, they can hear you. Uh, they may be standing right on the other side of the door trying to hold it closed, right? You could be inches away, but that door means that you are shut out. You're cut off from them by their choice. They don't want you around. Um, well, David loved the temple, and he loved that he was close to God. But the reality is, he was cut off. And he was cut off. He could only get so close. And the old system failed to bring them into God's presence, to be truly near God and with him. So that old system had to be done away and had to be replaced with something new. And he says the old has been done away. Um, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Right? We have a better hope. Uh, in English, a hope usually means a wish, something that we would like to see happen. So we could say we would like, we would wish that we could be near to God. But in, in the Bible, uh, it can have that meaning. But more often it means the actual person or thing on which that expectation is centered. And that would be the meaning here. In other words, the hope is not what we wish. The hope is Jesus. Right? Jesus is the hope. And through him, we have uh, the, we do draw near to God. He's already mentioned this in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, where he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters. Right? 
Again, Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right? That's his priesthood. Through his sacrifice, through his death, he has gone through the curtain, through the barrier ahead of us, and he has opened the door that was shut to us through his own blood. Um, on the cross when Jesus was dying, right? when he breathed his final breath and it says it is finished, what happened in the temple? The, the veil was torn in two. Right? The barrier was removed. And so this is indeed for us a much better hope, infinitely better hope, not only because it promises the forgiveness of sins, but because it guarantees access into God's presence. That is the the great goal and purpose of salvation. God did not just save you to deal with your spiritual dirty laundry. He saved you to bring you into his very presence. So he says, as a result of this great hope, we now draw near to God. We we don't come into just some outer courtyard where we can gaze at a distance. Um, We come into the holy place itself. Uh, Now, of course, in the Old Testament, this was the privilege of every priest. Every priest did have access into the holy place. Uh, But even for them, as they would come in, they could only come as far as the veil, as the curtain. And then even they hit a closed door. Only one time a year, and only the high priest himself could enter into the Holy of Holies. But we have full, unrestricted access, not only into the holy place, but into the Holy of Holies, into God's very presence. Face to face with God Almighty. Uh, So so here's the message. We don't have to wait until we die and go to heaven to be near God, to enjoy Him, to experience close, intimate relationship with Him, or to access His power and help. Just as the temple was God giving a piece of heaven on earth, so now through Jesus we have a temple here on earth that we can enter and come into His presence to come near to his glory and to encounter it in a way that, that we long to bow in worship. Uh, the truth is that we will never know true worship until we encounter God's presence. That's the beginning of true worship when we stand before him. Um, it's there that we come and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, not because we have to, because, but because of our great joy of what he has done for us. And that we get to be near him. Uh, To be near God is to know peace and joy that this world can never know. Um, That is the greater hope. That's the the solid food. This is what is for mature believers who want to move past just forgiveness of sins. And and understand that that what Jesus is about is, is bringing us into the very presence of God. And it is a difficult word. It is hard to hear. And for some people, they're like, okay, whatever, I don't, I don't get that. Right? How do you do that? It seems hard. It seems like, in many ways, it's contrary to our experience. Um, if we're honest, 
for most of us, this does seem like a wish and not a reality, right? Do you feel like you are living your life continually in God's presence? Um, Do you feel like this describes your daily experience? Well, if most of us are honest, we would probably say, well, no. Uh, And how does this work, right? How do we enter in, right? If it's there, if it's open for us, where's the path, right? How do I get there? I'm sure all of us want this, but it still seems distant. And maybe you feel like God is distant. Um, let, let Let me give three suggestions. I think there's much more. But three ways that I think we can... Um, experience this nearness to God. Okay, three things that we can do or we can be aware of to help us know what it means to draw near to God. First thing, uh, it's, uh, it's internal, not external. We are God's temple. Right? The New Testament teaching is not, we don't go to a place, this church is not a temple. Right? Uh, a building is not the temple. You yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are his holy temple. And collectively, we as the people of God sitting here now, uh, along with all his church, are his temple. And he dwells in his temple. But that temple is inside. It's somewhere in our heart, in our soul. It's an inward, internal thing. Um, And the cool thing is that in this temple, God is dwelling and there is no door. Right? He's there. He is fully accessible with unhindered, unlimited access. Uh, so we don't need to go to church to be near God. Right? If, you, if you'd hope that you would be near God coming this morning, I hope you're not disappointed because he is here. He's here in our midst as, as the body and bride of Christ. And I hope that in our worship, we're encountering him face to face. We are drawing near to him. But that's not required. Because when you go, you are the living temple of God and you take his holy presence and glory with you everywhere you go. Um, it also means that access to his presence is not limited to our quiet time or our devotions. And we use this language and it's good language. It's a great picture that when we go to meet God, we go to that quiet place, our prayer closet, and we get out our Bible and we do the things that David's going to teach you in his book to pray and to encounter God through prayer. And that's awesome, and we should do those things. But a lot of times we get the idea that, well, when we close our Bible and we say amen and we leave that prayer closet, God stays in the prayer closet, we go about our daily business, right? But guess what? He follows you. He goes with you because he's in you, right? The temple is now totally portable because it's in you. And everywhere you go, he goes, as that holy temple who's constantly available for you to access and and connect with. That's how we can pray without ceasing. That's how it should become in our life a constant reality where we are living in communion and fellowship with God, not just during those set-apart times of prayer and fellowship, but all the time, living life in his presence. Um, It, this, this means this, and, and many of us I know feel that uh, God is, is a million miles away. Right? You, want, you want God to be close and you want to feel something of his presence. And by the way, uh, there can be feelings, but this is not about feelings. Okay? Your feelings do not determine how near God is to you. Right? Get in a fight with your, your, your husband or your wife and you're super angry with them. 
Does that make them go farther away? Maybe it makes them closer, right? And you wish they would be farther away. It's not about feelings. It's about the reality of how close we are to him and his presence. Um, We may feel like there is some barrier separating us. Um, We may feel that, uh, that he is behind a door. But the truth is that, right, the truth is that through the blood of Jesus and through his high priestly work, he is present in your life no matter what. No matter what you do, no matter how bad you mess up, he is still dwelling in your heart and soul. His, his presence is there fully and completely, and unrestricted and unhindered access is available to you, regardless of how you feel. So we have to learn to act in ways contrary to what our heart tells us. So that brings us to the second thing. Hey, this is the reality. The reality is that this is, this is what it is. And he doesn't say that he's, the potential is there for us to draw near. He says, no, through Jesus we draw near. It's present tense and it has the idea of continuous ongoing activity. It's a reality. We are living in God's presence. It's not something we hope to aspire to or work toward. It's a reality. But the truth is, we still don't feel it, right? So how do we experience it? Uh, Because that's really the issue, not whether or not it's true. It's true by the work of Jesus. The real issue is, how do I experience it? How do I feel like I can encounter his presence? Well, for that, we have to enter by faith, right? What's required is for us to believe that the truth is true. That what Jesus says, what God's word promises, is actually the reality we live in. Um, We may not feel it. We may feel God is distance, or we may just not feel anything at all. But our drawing near to God is not based on feelings. So if you draw near and you don't get a buzz, there's no charge, there's nothing lights up, nothing glows in the dark, it's okay, right? Faith is, is believing that what God has promised is true. Right? We enter by faith. Um, uh, believing that it is accomplished already by the work of Christ. Right? It's accepting it as true. Um, plain and simple. He is our high priest. He has made a way through the, through the veil. He has torn it. He has given us full access God dwells in our hearts. We just got to believe that that's the reality we live in. The problem is that most of us just don't know it. And, and his, his accusation is those who are stuck on the milk, if all you ever think Jesus does for you is your spiritual laundry, then of course you're not going to draw into his presence because it's not even on your radar. Right? So it takes faith to claim and pursue that, to see it, Uh, for it to be a conviction that I am indeed living in his presence by Jesus' blood. Um, There's nothing that can be done on your part or on God's, because he's done it all, to bring you any closer than you already are. Uh, And and the wonders that that faith will produce in us. If we could just have that faith and for a moment could see with our spiritual eyes what's true for us in Jesus... It would be life transforming. But there's a third thing that we can do. Um, 
and, and that is required on our part. God has done everything. But in order for this to really work, it has to be something that you want. Right? You need to desire him, want him more than anything else. Um, the, the truth is, uh, the reason many of us do not understand what it means to draw near to God or live in his presence is because, honestly, we just love the things in the world more. Right? Uh, we, we haven't spent enough time, as the author warns us, paying attention to his word and his promises that we are drawn and, and, and enticed by them. Instead, we're drawn and enticed by the things of the world. Um, now, of course, none of us would ever say that, right? The truth is we all tell ourselves that we love God. We all read Psalms like Psalms 84 and we say, yeah, man, that, I, want, I want to be that person. I want to have that longing. That just sounds cool. I want that, right? Um, and I believe that there's a part of us that desires that. Um, what is lacking is not desire. The problem is, it is a matter of our will. Right? No matter how much you want something, the real test is not your desire for it, but, but the choices you make about it. If a college student decides, I want to I I be prime minister of my country, right? right? But uh, they go off and get a job as a janitor. What are the odds? <laughs> right? They have to make choices that say, if I'm going to be the prime minister of Thailand, I'm going to make choices that are going to pursue that course of action. Well, same is true for us. We make choices every day about how we use our time and our, our energy and, and our resources, and that's how we vote on what really matters to us. Right? No matter how much we say we want something, the real test is how we actually make decisions about our time and our energy and our resources. Uh, faith is hard, and the reality is you cannot always make yourself believe something more. Right? You can hear this truth and you can say, man, I want to believe that and part of me, but, but you just don't muscle up faith. It doesn't work that way. Um, but you can make choices. The truth is, decisions lie in our power. Um, and where we cannot just will up deeper conviction, we can make choices about our priorities. And if you want to draw near to God, it has to be a priority that's reflected in how you make choices about your life, about what matters to you, about what you love most, about what you give your money to. And I'm not talking about just ties, but I mean what you spend time and energy doing with your life. Right? Does your life re reflect a person who's pursuing God, who longs to live in his presence? Or if you were honest, does your life really kind of just reflect a person who pretty much loves the world, who loves all the stuff it has? And it doesn't mean we can't enjoy the world God's given us. But what's the true pursuit of your heart and life? Let me close by just reading again part of um, Psalms 84 uh, because the heart of David here is, is, is uh, uh, or whoever the psalmist was, uh, the, his heart is right on. Does this describe your heart? 
How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. I know we're going to pray and then Graham is going to come lead us in worship. And it's a great time to, by faith, experience God's presence as we come before him and worship the true and living God. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.